Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We have been working our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Daniel, and we are now at Daniel chapter 5. Between the end of Daniel chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar has died, and his son, Nabonidus, has become the king of all Babylon. But... As we read in Daniel chapter 5, we don't read about Nabonidus. We know from secular history that the son of Nebuchadnezzar, Nabonidus, was the next king. And yet, Daniel says that the next king is a fellow named Belshazzar. And he refers to Belshazzar the king. And so this is one of the places where the critics of the Bible and the critics, particularly of Daniel have found, they think, something substantial that they can say, look, Daniel's wrong because Daniel said the king after Nebuchadnezzar is Belshazzar, who was not the next king. It was actually this Nabonidus. Well, starting about the mid-1800s, archaeology started turning up a series of clay cylinders. These ancient clay cylinders are not uncommon. There are Cyrus cylinders and different Middle East leaders who... What they did was they had cylindrical stories about themselves, extolling the virtues of themselves. And beginning in the middle of the 1800s, 1850s and stuff, they started turning up cylinders that were written by and about Nabonidus. And Nabonidus was talking about how he restored the tower and the temple to the moon god. And then there was one cylinder, a Nabonidus cylinder, that's what it's called in archaeology. There was one Nabonidus cylinder in which he referred to himself and his son Belshazzar. And that was the first time in modern history that people found out, oh wait, the name Belshazzar actually does appear in ancient Babylon and it turns out that the critics of Daniel were wrong because the critics of Daniel were saying that there's no record of any Belshazzar and we know that Nabonidus was the next king so Daniel's wrong he's made something up he's made a mistake turns out that Daniel was completely correct in fact let me read you something here from the site of Farrell Jenkins I don't know if you know Farrell Jenkins I like to read every once in a while off his site He's in the Biblical Studies Department at the Florida College. Prior to his 2001 retirement, he served as the chair of that department. And he's really into biblical archaeology. And so I liked what he had to say about the Nabonidus Cylinder. So I'll just read that out to you because I do operate on the assumption that there's nothing more fun than listening to Jim Reed. He writes this, Belshazzar is called King several times in the book of Daniel. He is referred to as the son of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 5, 21 and 22. There may be many things we still do not know about the historical setting of Daniel, but we understand from Babylonian records that Nabonidus was the king of Babylon at this time, roughly 556 to 539 BC. So how can it be said that Belshazzar is king And how can Daniel be the third in the kingdom? Which, as we read through this chapter, you'll see that Belshazzar wants to reward Daniel by making him the third in the kingdom. Well, why not second? If you're the king, Daniel should be second to you. Well, perhaps no book in the Old Testament has come under more critical attack than the book of Daniel. As far back as the third century A.D., A Phoenician philosopher named Porphyry claimed that the book of Daniel was written about 165 B.C. And this is at the time of the oppression of Israel by the Seleucid ruler Antiochus Epiphanes. By dating the book, which reports events of the 6th century B.C. to the 2nd century, 
most of the prophetic elements then, if it was late dated and written about 165 BC, then most of those prophetic elements are removed. So this view has been followed by many liberal scholars. I recall learning it first from Robert H. Pfeiffer's Introduction to the Old Testament. So even though information continues to come to light that suggests the feasibility of the biblical account, rarely do the critical scholars acknowledge those facts. An article by Dr. Alan R. Millard dealing with these issues appeared in the Biblical Archaeology Review, May and June of 1985. At the time of this article, Millard was Rankin Senior Lecturer in Hebrew and Ancient Semitic Studies at the University of Liverpool in England. He explains the discovery of clay cylinders in southern Iraq by J.G. Taylor. Sir Henry Rawlinson was able to read the Babylonian cuneiform. The inscriptions, he writes, had been written at the command of Nabonidus, king of Babylon, from 555 to 539 B.C. The king had repaired the temple tower, and the clay cylinders commemorated that fact. The inscriptions proved that the ruined tower was the temple in the city of Ur, and the words were a prayer for the good health and the long life of Nabonidus, and for his eldest son, and the name of that son, clearly written on the Nabonidus cylinder, was Belshazzar. So Millard explains the significance of this discovery. He writes, here was clear proof that an important person named Belshazzar lived in Babylon during the last days of the city's independence. So Belshazzar was not an entirely imaginary figure. This prayer, however, speaks of Belshazzar only as the king's eldest son and not as king. So Professor Millar asks, what exactly was Belshazzar's position? Well, since 1854, several more Babylonian documents have been unearthed that mention Belshazzar. In every case, however, he is the king's son or the crown prince. He is never given the title of the king of Babylon, although most scholars now admit that the author of the book of Daniel did not invent Belshazzar, they still assert that, nevertheless, the biblical author made a major mistake in referring to him as king. Yet, even that may not be quite right. In legal deeds from the 6th century BC, the parties swear oaths by the gods and by the king, according to a well-known and long-standing practice. In some of these deeds from the reign of Nabonidus, we find that the parties swear by Nabonidus and by Belshazzar, the king's son. This formula of swearing by the king and his son is unattested in any other reign or any other documents yet discovered. This suggests that Belshazzar may have had a special status. We know that during part of the time of his father's reign, Belshazzar was the effective authority in Babylon. The Babylonian texts reveal that Nabonidus was an eccentric ruler. While he did not ignore the gods of Babylon, he did not treat them in the approved way. And he gave very considerable attention to the moon god at two other cities, Ur and Haran. For several years of his reign, Nabonidus did not even live in Babylon. Instead, he stayed in a distant oasis of Tima in northern Arabia. During that time, Belshazzar ruled in Babylon. And according to one account, Nabonidus, quote, entrusted the kingship to Belshazzar. The small cuneiform foundation cylinders prove not only that Daniel was right, but that Belshazzar was acting as king. Fant and Reddish provide this translation of the significant portion. It says, as for me, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, 
save me from sinning against your great Godhead and grant me as a present a life of long days. Now, by the way, he's not saying this to Yahweh. He's not praying it to the God of Israel. He's praying it to the moon God who he has built a tower to in Ur of the Chaldees. Why does Ur of the Chaldees ring a bell to us? That's where Abraham comes from, Ur of the Chaldees. So now we know the area in the Babylonian region where Abraham came from to come down and establish Israel. So as for me, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, save me from sinning against your Godhead and grant me as a present a life of long days, and as for Belshazzar, the eldest son of my offspring, instill reverence for your great Godhead in his heart, and may he not commit a cultic mistake. May he be sated with a life of plentitude. So Belshazzar was already second in the kingdom, serving as a co-regent with his absent father, and that's the reason that he could offer Daniel to be third in the kingdom behind his father and himself. So when you read it in Daniel 5, you find yet again the accuracy of the Bible, even during times when nobody could find any reference to Belshazzar. There was a couple thousand years there where people were arguing that Belshazzar never existed, yet the Bible said he did. And there was a time when people were trying to late date Daniel because it's so prophetically accurate that people said there's just no way that it could have been written during the 6th century. And then we found copies of the Apocalypse of Daniel in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls that went back to before the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. So evidence, archaeology, keeps proving that the Bible is true. And much of it is happening just in our lifetime. I mean, we're talking about the 1850s here, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1950s. I mean, we're talking about very, very current finds that are proving things that previous generations just didn't have access to. And it would be horrible if what we dug up proved the Bible to be wrong, but what we're digging up continues to validate what the Bible says. And so we have great confidence in the Bible. Now, as I said before, between Daniel 4 and 5, Nebuchadnezzar has died. His son, Nabonidus, has become king. He has placed the kingship in the hands of Belshazzar. By the end of this chapter, the kingdom of Babylon is going to fall to the Medo-Persians. Now, it is important to recognize a few things happening here because prophetically, this had to happen. This was more than just a military venture. Before the night is out, I'm going to read you a little account of it that says that the Medo-Persians conquered seemingly impregnable Babylon without really having to kill a great many people. They just kind of swept into the city by blocking up the waters of the Euphrates. And once the water dried up, they came under the walls. And they did it during the night that we're about to read about. So even as Belshazzar is having his feast, and even as they're all in their thousands getting drunk and having a great party, the very people who are going to conquer him are coming under the wall, and Belshazzar dies that very night. Why? Because the Medes and the Persians have to be the next people to conquer Babylon, or else the Bible is wrong. Not only has Daniel seen visions of the Medo-Persians coming next, then the Greeks, then the Romans, then the Ten-Toed Kingdom, but 150 to 200 years before Cyrus the Persian was even king, Isaiah predicted him by name and said that God was going to use him specifically to bring the people of Israel back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. You want to read it? Let's do that. Turn to the book of Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 45. We'll actually start in Isaiah 44. And this is a genuinely fascinating bit of prophecy here. And we're going to start in chapter 44, right around verse 26. 
Confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers, it is I, God, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. Now, this is during the time that Jerusalem has been abandoned and they've been conquered and the Babylonian captivity is happening and Isaiah is predicting that Jerusalem is not only going to be inhabited but ultimately inhabited with a kingdom that has no end. But it is I who say of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who say to the depths of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, who? Suddenly he just brings up Cyrus. Now, because this is, like I said, 150 to 200 years before Cyrus, depending on where you want to start the count, the beginning of Cyrus's life or the beginning of Cyrus's reign, that's the difference. But at this point, nobody knows who Cyrus is. And here's Isaiah speaking of him. It is I who says of Cyrus, he will be my shepherd. He will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. The word anointed there means the one that God has specifically assigned a specific duty. When you see anointed, don't think, oh, God is saving Cyrus, because in a moment he's going to say, but you don't know me, and you've never known me, and you're not going to know me, but I've anointed you to do this. Why? Because of my people Israel. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings. By the way, funny phrase, loose the loins of kings, because when we get to Daniel chapter 5, when the hand writes on the wall, we read of Belshazzar that his loins are loosed. So, so God is even predicting that. I'm going to make him so scared he needs to find a bathroom soon. I mean, that's what the phrase means. I'm going to open doors before him that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. And I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places in order that you may know that it is I, the Lord. That's the proper name, Yahweh, the king of Israel, who calls you by your name. Cyrus doesn't exist yet. And God is calling him repeatedly by his name. You're going to be the king of the Persians, and your name is Cyrus. You're going to let my people go back to rebuild the temple in the city. And so you're my anointed. I've chosen you to do this task. And in order for you to be able to do that task, I'm going to have to open gates to you and knock down the bars of iron, and I'm going to have to make you the king of the Middle East. And I'm going to do that for the sole reason of bringing my people back to Jerusalem. It's the Lord, the God of Israel, that calls you by your name. Why? Verse 4, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen. Some of your translations will say, Israel, mine elect. That's why I have called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor. Though you have not known me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other, the one forming light and the one creating darkness, the one causing well-being and the one creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, that's why there had to, during the time of Belshazzar's feast, there had to be the incursion of the Medes and the Persians because the Medes and the Persians had to be ruling in Babylon because that's where God's people were so that God could send his people back to rebuild his temple so that his worship could continue. 
That's a really sovereign God. Now think about this for just a moment. We know that 150 roughly years before Cyrus is on the scene, Isaiah has predicted that Cyrus is going to be a king in the Middle East so that he can specifically send the Israelites back to rebuild God's temple. Think about the number of things that had to happen for the next century and a half in order for that to come true. Because this is not just God declaring the end from the beginning, not just God predicting that Cyrus is going to be here and then hoping it works out that way. This is God saying, this is what I'm going to do, and then setting about to use his almighty power to make sure that it actually happens. But think of the number of people who had to meet, who had to get married, who had to have babies, who had to name their children certain things. What if Cyrus's parents had decided not to name him Cyrus? What if they decided to name him after a different Persian king? Or, or what if they had had a baby girl instead? Or what if Cyrus, for some reason, got sick before he became king? Just think of all the things that had to happen, all the people who had to cross paths with other people and intermarry with other people and have children with other people so that there would just happen to be at that exact moment a king in Persia named Cyrus. Either God got phenomenally lucky or he is able to just say, this is what I'm going to do. This is the future of mankind. I'm telling you what it is right now because the future is in my hands. I'm going to dictate what happens. I am going to take sovereign control over the events of this planet. And I'm going to let you in on one of the things I'm doing. I'm going to bring about Cyrus. So as we read Daniel chapter 5, keep in mind that God is working out something he has already predicted he's going to do. And I think that's one of the reasons that he does this very special and peculiar miracle where he sends a detached hand to write on the plaster of the wall during Belshazzar's feast. And that's going to happen because Belshazzar has decided that he's going to use the implements and the, the cups taken by Nebuchadnezzar out of the temple that had all been made holy, that had all been sanctified, for God's exclusive use. You couldn't use it for any common reason. And Belshazzar says, bring in all that, all those golden cups and everything else from the temple in Israel, and, and they're going to have their drunken bacchanalia with that stuff. Which means that on the very night that God determined he was going to bring the Medo-Persians into Babylon to conquer Belshazzar, that very night Belshazzar was also doing something that was completely desecrating the holy objects so that God is completely justified in destroying him. And at the end of the chapter, Belshazzar dies that night. Now, we talk sometimes here about compatibilism, and we're not going to get into it too heavily tonight, but I think this is a perfect example of it. Belshazzar is just doing what he wants to do. And what he wants to do is evil things. And what he does is desecrate the things of God that are the holy objects of God and so God rightly condemns him and even says who it is now Nathan how would you not know this is where I am God quite rightly punishes Belshazzar for doing the very thing he's doing and yet Belshazzar is already decreed to die that night because his kingdom's going to be turned over to Cyrus, who was predicted 150 years in advance, so that God can take the people he has elected and bring them back to his temple for his worship. You get in the big picture here? There's a whole lot of stuff going on here. And uh, I don't want you to miss any of it, even though I'm probably not even hitting all the details. But never forget that God can juggle a whole lot of stuff at once to bring about all the things he said he's ultimately going to do. Which is why, by the way, I think he can hear my prayers as much as he can hear your prayers, as much as he can hear prayers of somebody on the other side of the planet. And as much as he can respond to what I've asked, 
the same way as he's responding to what anyone else has asked because he has the ability to bring everything far beyond what we can comprehend. He can bring everything into alignment with his will and his determination and do all of it perfectly. We have a hard time thinking that way, but when you see examples like this, it's like, wow, how did you pull that off? I can't even plan an afternoon and, and you... Daniel 5, turn there. Daniel 5, verse 1, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem in order that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Well, that would be the right reaction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, big mistake. Big, enormous mistake. These are things that are consecrated for God's exclusive use in the worship of God. One of the things we know about Nabonidus is that unlike Nebuchadnezzar, who had really inspired the people and was the great king, Nabonidus was much more passive and spent his time, at, like we read about on the oasis in the upper peninsula of Arabia and stuff. And the people really apparently didn't like him as a king generally, and they didn't like Belshazzar, mostly because they didn't worship the Babylonian gods the way they were used to being worshipped. And he kind of made the other gods unimportant, and Murdoch was the only one that he worshipped, the moon god and stuff. And there was already a general feeling in Babylon that we don't really like these people too much. So you can see why Nebuchadnezzar would say, well, now I'm going to throw a great feast, and I'm going to bring in a thousand people, and, and I'm going to bring in all my nobles, and I'm going to show off my great wealth and my splendor, and I'm, I'm really going to show that I know what I'm doing here. I'm the son of the king, but I'm ruler in Babylon. And then when he brings in the gold and the silver vessels from the temple, I'm sure everybody was very, very impressed. I'm sure even the concubines drinking out of golden cups felt very good about themselves. And after all, this was a terrible affront to the Jews. They're a conquered people now, so we're going to take their holy objects and have wine out of them and a bacchanalia and a feast with them. And... But you're right, it's a bad idea. Verse 3. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the kings and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine, and they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So now they're even using the objects that are dedicated to the worship of Yahweh in their own worship of idols of gold and silver and wood and stone. So this is truly, genuinely an affront to God. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged. Now, you got to kind of see this for a moment in your mind's eye. Because they didn't have electric lighting. So you've got a great big hall that has white plastered walls with torches on them. And that's what's lighting the room. And one of these big white walls lit by flickering torches, suddenly a hand appears and starts writing on the wall. This has to be astoundingly frightening. I mean, it would be another thing if like a guy showed up and wrote on the wall. Then everybody kind of go, who's he? Did anybody invite him? We don't, we don't know this guy. But there's just a hand. And by the way, let me add, the phrase that Handwriting on the wall, which is so common, that's not the phrase. It's not the handwriting on the wall. It's the hand right. writing on the wall. <laughs> Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. 
I think the purpose of him saying opposite the lampstand was it means it was someplace where everybody could see it. It's a well-lit wall. And just to note my ever-accurate King James translation. <laughs> yes. I think it makes it even more eerie. It says the finger scratched words into the plaster. Yeah. Those King James guys were eerie. <laughs> Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> and his thoughts alarmed him. And his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. And the king called aloud to bring in the conjurers and the Chaldeans and the diviners. And the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me will be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and of his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or let your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, that be Nebuchadnezzar, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the musicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you Daniel, who is one of the exiles of Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make the interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself. Why do you think Daniel was so quick to say, I don't need anything from you? It's because he was reading what was on the wall. <laughs> and he's figuring... You're not king for long. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter if you make me anything, because you're not going to be here. Then Daniel answered, verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God, granted sovereignty grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, 
he spared alive, and whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. And that's everything we read last week. That he ended up eating grass with the wild animals and his hair grew out like eagles' feathers and that his nails grew like talons and he lost his mind and it wasn't until his sanity was restored to him that he came to recognize the God of heaven who does whatever he wants to do among the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth and no one can stop his hand and no one can say, what are you doing? Well, when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts. And his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Now, by the way, a couple of times here, Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as your father. That's very, very common in the Bible. They didn't have a grandfather word. Your progenitors were referred to as your father. That's why Jesus is referred to as the son of David, even though a thousand years had passed. As long as you were from the seed of the lineage of, then your progenitors were known as your father. So that's why Nebuchadnezzar is referred to here as the father of Belshazzar. Now, Belshazzar knew all that. He knew the story of the grandeur and the glory of Nebuchadnezzar, and he knew that Nebuchadnezzar had been driven into the fields and lost his mind and had come to the conclusion that the Most High God is the ruler over the realm of mankind and that he gives it to whoever he wants, and yet you did not humble yourself, verse 23, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, do not hear, do not understand, but the God in whose hands are your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. So the works of his hands that he would worship, but the God of heaven He did not worship and didn't respect and even was taking the holy objects that were dedicated to the worship of God, the most high God, and was using them for carnal reasons. Notice, by the way, that it doesn't say that Daniel was at the feast. They had to go get Daniel to bring him in to interpret. And before he interprets, he knows everything that happened in that room before he got there. I mean, God is already showing him This is why I'm upset. This is why I'm taking Belshazzar down. Verse 24. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Eupharsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. That's really interesting. Remember, this is the same God who said that the Israelites were going to be in Babylon for 70 years. This is the same God who, when we get to the later portions of Daniel, when we get into the prophetic parts, Daniel is going to say, just do what you said you were going to do, and after 70 years, send us back home. That's what you said you were going to do. And Gabriel ends up telling him, I'm going to give you 70 times 7. So not only is this the God of the whole earth and the God of everything that happens, but this is the God who understands the science of the planet, and this is the God who understands the mathematics of the planet. 
Human beings did not get mathematically clever and then know something that God didn't first know. God knows math, and God very frequently speaks in mathematic terms, very specific mathematic terms, which is why he can say, it's going to be this many years, this many days, and then I'm going to do something. And we're going to see that as we continue through Daniel. You see it all the time in the book of Revelation. God's speaking through very specific sequences of numbers. Well, here he says, your kingdom has been numbered. So God knows how many days you were going to be king. And you're at the end of that number now. And there's going to be no more kingdom for you. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the scales and found deficient. I think the King James says you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. In other words... God, who is the judge of everything, has already judged you, and you got nothing. And so he's going to judge you. And Perez, which is a word that that has at its root the ancient word for the Persians, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Now the Medes and the Persians, of course, were becoming a mighty nation there in the Middle East and had been... Uh, an enemy at that point of Babylon, but Babylon was not worried about them. And again, Nabonidus, being uh, an ineffective king, was not protecting his people or warding off the incursion of the Medes and the Persians. And Babylon thought that there was just no way they could fall because, like I said, they had a river that came straight under the walls of Babylon, bringing a constant water supply so they could close the gates and close the walls and and nobody could get in. And they could live in there for a long time, longer than the armies outside the wall could remain out there. And so the Medes and the Persians effectively dammed up the Euphrates River so that as the water went down and the riverbed became drier, they could that night just come under the wall and suddenly just appear in the city. And the city was not prepared at all for war. And as a consequence, the city fell that night. So even as God is writing it on the wall, it's happening. Verse 29, Belshazzar gave orders. They clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. A lot of good that did him for the rest of the day, huh? Yeah. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Now let me do some more reading here. I'm going to be reading a bit of Stephen Hirsch from his book, The Friendship of the Barbarians, Xenophon and the Persian Empire. Here, let me explain it. Herodotus, though writing long after the events, had traveled in Mesopotamia and spoken to the Babylonians In his writing, which was called the Syropedia, Xenophon, in agreement with Herodotus, Xenophon being a historian, in agreement with Herodotus, says that the combined Median and Persian army entered the city via the channel of the Euphrates River. The river, having been diverted into trenches that Cyrus had dug for the invasion, and that the city was unprepared, because of the great festival that it was observing. So in this Cyropedia, it describes the capture of Babylon by the general Gobrius. That's my best bet at his name. Gobrius remarks that, quote, this night the whole city is given over to revelry, including to some extent the guards. Those who opposed the forces under Gobrius were struck down, including those outside the banquet hall. The capture of the city and the slaying of the sun king of the king is described in the Chiropedia or Cyropedia, and is described this way. This is quoting it. Thereupon they entered, and of those they met some who were struck down and slain, and others fled into their houses, and some raised the hue and cry. 
But Gobrius and his friends covered the cry with their shouts, as though they were revelers themselves. And thus, making their way by the quickest route, they soon found themselves in front of the king's palace. Here the detachment under Gobrius and Gadatus found the gates closed, but the men appointed to attack the guards rushed on them as they lay drinking around a blazing fire and closed in on them right then and there. As the din grew louder and louder, those within the hall became aware of the tumult, till the king bidding them to see what it all meant, some of them opened the gates to run out. Gadatus and his men, seeing the gates swing wide, darted in, hard on the heels of the others who fled back again, and they chased them at the sword point to the presence of the king. They found him on his feet with his drawn scimitar in his hand. By sheer weight of numbers, they overwhelmed him, and not one of his retinue escaped. They were all cut down, some flying, others snatching up anything to serve as a shield and defending themselves as best they could. That's the end of that quote. The reason I'm reading this is, this is Herodotus, this is ancient history, and they are filling in the blanks of the book of Daniel and saying in secular history that the things that Daniel describes actually happened. It actually took place. That night, Babylon fell with a minimum of bloodshed because the soldiers who made it under the wall were able to move so quickly into the king's palace. And once the king's dead, the city falls. Therefore, both Xenophon and Daniel 5 describe the demise of Belshazzar as occurring on the night that the city was taken. Xenophon, Herodotus, and Daniel agree that the city was taken by surprise. Suddenly, at the time of the festival, and with some, but apparently not much, loss of life. Another detail found in the Cyropedia, but not in Herodotus, is that there were two kings reigning over the Babylonian kingdom when the city fell, father and son. And it was the younger king who was reigning in the city when it was taken and who was killed that night. The Cyropedia does not name either king and the silence of other classical sources regarding Belshazzar led to the denial of the historicity of Daniel naming Belshazzar as the king who was slain until cuneiform evidence was found corroborating the existence of Belshazzar as the king who was reigning in Babylon. And that brings us full circle. In other words, Daniel chapter 5, though it's been highly criticized, though there have been plenty of folks who say it has to be made up. The details can't be right. Daniel can't possibly know the things that he knows. History, archaeology, continue to uncover facts that tell us the things that we just read in chapter 5 were true. And that means that the very God who named Cyrus to be the next king is absolutely sovereign and absolutely in control. Now, the when we get to chapter 6, we're going to find Daniel serving Darius the Mede. So he served Nebuchadnezzar. He served Belshazzar. Then the Medo-Persians come in. He ends up serving the Median Persian king, which is really quite remarkable. I mean, Daniel was taken out of Jerusalem as one of the captive Jews. And then he winds up second only to Nebuchadnezzar, third only to Nabonidus and Belshazzar. And then he ends up serving under Darius. Because God continues to put his man in the right place. And I find that absolutely remarkable. That God prepared Daniel and gave him wisdom and knowledge. And then put him in the very kingdom for 70 years. Where he could best be used to preserve the people of Israel. So that the people of Israel after 70 years can go back to rebuild the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah that period of time. You get all that? I'm guessing he took that off. And the proclamation was yeah. fire long ago. Yeah. Aren't you the third under Belshazzar? Yeah, for like an hour. You know, I, you know. So next week we will pick up in Daniel 6. Next week is one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament. It's Daniel in the lion's den. 
but even the Sunday school story fails to uh, get into the reasons that happened. It was because the Medo-Persian contemporaries didn't like the fact that there was a Jew having this much power in the, in the courts of Darius the Mede. So they tried to get a charge against him. And, and then we will get into the prophetic visions starting in chapter 7. So there's lots and lots of really good stuff coming up in the book of Daniel. So if you walk away with nothing else tonight, recognize God's absolute and total control numbering the kings down to the very day that their kingdom is going to stop, naming kings a century and a half before they show up, and that everything he is doing is for the good, he said it in Isaiah, for the good and the purpose of his elect. He was even using foreign kings who did not know him so that he could accomplish what was best for his people, and that God has not changed. He's still in the enterprise of using the evil of this world and the trials of this world for the benefit of his elect. As I keep saying over and over again, God is way too sovereign not to do that, which brings him the greatest good, and he loves you too much not to do for you what brings you the greatest good. He's glorified in the way that he brings good into the life of his people and his elect, And he doesn't abandon those people. Instead, he gives them appropriate advancement and appropriate protection in this present evil age. Make sense? sense. And you see that God all the way through the Bible. Questions? Anything? We're good? good? Well, all right then. Well, then in that case, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye! Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.